afternoon we find our text from God's Word as we confess it and as it has been summarized in Lord's Day in 19. The Lord's Day in 19. In Lord's Day 19 we confess why is it at it and sits at the right hand of God. Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. The second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his on my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes when it comes to Lord's Day, like Lord's Day 19, we're dealing about, we would talk about Christ sitting at the right hand of God. We talk about him as being there at God's right hand, and that he will again return as the judge in order to judge the living and the dead. And then sometimes Christians will say, well, why, why bother with all those different doctrines and those uh, different uh, teachings and all that theology. It's not all that important. All that's important is that you believe. And sometimes we, we hear this thought, doctrine, theology, the teaching divide, while faith is what unites. Of course, there's no question at all that faith is what unites God's people. But when we talk about faith, faith is also something that needs to have content. If you have faith, that means that you're saying that you believe in something. And so if somebody says, you know, I believe in the Lord to Jesus, but then they can't tell you what they really believe about the Lord Jesus, they can't tell you who he is, what he has done, or what he is doing, then that really is an empty faith. Or you can say that is no faith at all. And so, doctrine, theology, biblical teaching is so very important for the life of God's people. Now, doctrine or theology may sometimes seem like they're big words, but it simply is a reference to the teachings that God has revealed to us in His Holy Word in the Bible. It is God's Word that teaches us who the Lord Jesus really is. In God's Word, He tells us what the Lord Jesus came to do when He came to this world. In His Word, God reveals to us what the Lord Jesus is still doing today. And in His Word, God also reveals to us what the Lord Jesus will do in the future. And so understanding who Jesus is, believing also in our hearts that He is the one who is busy 
with working for our life and for our salvation today, that will affect also the way that we see the world in which we are living and it affect the way in which we're going to live here in this world. And so on Lord's Day 19, we confess from the Word of God that when the Lord Jesus ascended up into heaven, that there he was seated at the right hand of God, and that he's going to remain there until the day when he will again return from heaven to judge the living and the dead. And so when we reflect on this teaching, then we also need to ask in regard to that teaching, what is faith? Well, faith, beloved, believes that Jesus, that the Lord Jesus is indeed alive, that he is the one who is resurrected from the dead. Faith believes that he has ascended into heaven and that he sits there at the right hand of God, and that from there he is today, he is busy ruling over the whole world in which we live today. You see, faith believes that the whole world is being ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith acknowledges that the Lord Jesus is the Lord of Lords, that He is the King of Kings. And if you have that faith, doesn't that change your life? Doesn't that change the way that you live each day of your life? For beloved, true faith means that we serve the Lord Jesus each day to the best of our ability, because we know who He is and because we love Him and we want to serve Him. That means that every day of your life you will be asking the Lord, you will also be asking yourself, so now how do I serve my Lord today? What has He called me to do this day? How do I serve Him today when as a student I, I go to school? How do I act as a student if I am a child of the Lord Jesus? Or how, or how do I serve my Lord if, at the work that I do at home or the work that I do on my job? And then also, this also means that each day we do our work with this expectation that the Lord Jesus can return from heaven at any moment. And that when he comes, that he will come as the great judge to judge the living and the dead so that I on that day will also have to give answer to him for everything that I have done. And so faith believes that the Lord Jesus is indeed, He's the risen Lord. And that today my life is completely in His hands. And faith believes that one day my Lord will again return from heaven. And when He comes, and He will establish the kingdom of heaven in all of His glory here on this earth. And that's a day that we may look forward to with eager longing every day again. And so this afternoon... We will confess God's word under this theme. We see the Son of Man is sitting at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. So our theme this afternoon, we see the Son of Man sitting there at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. We'll ask three questions. First of all, we'll ask, who is the Son of Man? Secondly, why does he sit at the right hand of God? And in the third place, what will he do when he comes on the clouds of heaven? We read together a portion dealing with the trial of our Lord Jesus, where the, where the high priest 
speaks to the Lord Jesus, and he asks the Lord uh, Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 63, whether he was the Christ, the Son of God. And the Lord Jesus replied to the high priest, and he says, yes, it is as you say. And then he goes on and he says this, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Those words of our Lord Jesus really form, you can say, the basis for what we confess here in Lord's Day 19. And the Lord Jesus, when he speaks to the high priest Caiaphas, speaks about himself as the Son of Man. And so he says to the high priest, and he says to all those who were present there, he says, in the future, more literally, from now on, from this day on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. Well, the first question that comes to our mind is, so why does he call himself the Son of Man? It's obvious from the reaction of the high priests and the leaders of Israel who were there uh, that the Lord Jesus, that they understood what the Lord Jesus was saying, and, and it made them very angry because they knew what the Lord Jesus was claiming with these words. You see, the term Son of Man was indeed a fairly common uh, term that was found in the, the Old Testament. Now, it could be used in different ways. Sometimes it was simply used to refer to somebody who uh, was a human being. So, for example, Psalm 8 speaks about the Son of Man in contrast to God and asks, who is the Son of Man in comparison to the Almighty God? But that's not the only way that it's used. Jesus here is clearly referring to uh, another uh, reference in the, in the Old Testament Scriptures. He's referring back to uh, what we read uh, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 7, verse 13. Uh, there in, in the book of Daniel, Daniel sees, uh, receives a dream from God, and, and in that dream he, he sees one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, not only does Jesus use the term son of man from that particular vision, but he also makes reference to how this son of man approaches the ancient of days and that he is the one who will come with the clouds of heaven. So the question really is here then, before we ask what does the Lord Jesus mean, who is the Son of Man that, that Daniel sees in that particular vision? Well, you know in that vision that Daniel saw four different beasts. First of all, he, he saw the lion, and then he saw a bear. Third place, the third beast he saw was a leopard. And then finally, the fourth beast, the, the last one he saw, was a terrifying and it was a frightening beast, which he couldn't really, really identify. And those four beasts that Daniel sees, they represent four different kingdoms in the world. Well, the fact that these kingdoms are represented by animals or beasts indicates that, like the beasts eat and devour other animals, so these beasts also, they devour and they destroy the peoples of the earth. And so they are terrible, they're miserable kingdoms. That's bad enough when you have the first three kingdoms. But the fourth beast that Daniel sees uh, used its iron teeth to crush and to devour the victims and to trample underfoot whatever was left of this earth. And then after Daniel sees those, those four beasts representing those four kingdoms, then Daniel also saw before him, one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
And the Son of Man, he came and he approached the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days here represents the Lord God. And he was led into his presence, into the presence of God, or the one who's called the Ancient of Days. And so what you see here then in this vision is that the Son of Man is led into the holy presence of Almighty God. And then in Daniel 7, verse 14, we're told that the Son of Man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion, we're told, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so, in the place of those terrible kingdoms, represented by those horrible beasts, Daniel then also sees another kingdom. A kingdom that is ruled by one who, he says, is the son of man. That means that this fifth kingdom that Daniel sees will, will not be ruled by the beasts that, that seek to devour mankind, but this kingdom will, will have a son of man. That is, it will have a human being who, who cares for his fellow man and, and who will rule over his fellow people because he cares about them as fellow human beings. And this one who is a son of man, he's exalted by God and he's given authority to, to rule over the earth. And his kingdom will be a glorious kingdom that will last forever, and it will never be destroyed. And so, when the Lord Jesus now says to the Caiaphas, the high priest, that he is the Son of Man, what is the Lord Jesus really saying then to the high priest? Well, he says to the high priest, I am indeed the, the Son of God who has come as a Son of Man that Daniel spoke about in his vision. And right now you might see me here on trial. And you might see me in my humiliation. Yes, you see me being terribly humble before you. And in, very soon you will be putting me to death and you will be nailing me onto the cross. And you will think, well, who am I? But I tell you, but I tell you that from now on, you will see me exalted by God. Jesus says, I have now come to the end of my suffering. Yes, soon I will be crucified, and then I will enter into my glory. And so you will see me as a son of man sitting there at the right hand of God Almighty in heaven. Well, it's obvious that the high priest understood what the Lord Jesus was saying and what the Lord Jesus was claiming about himself. Because the Jews, they understood that the Son of Man in Daniel was a reference to the Messiah. And that he was going to come and he would establish the kingdom of God here on this earth. And so the Jews, well, they were waiting for that Son of Man to come that he might establish his everlasting kingdom here on this earth. But they didn't want to recognize the Lord Jesus as the Son of Man. Why? Because his kingdom is not a kingdom here of this earth. They didn't want to recognize him because the Lord Jesus did not come that he might set up a kingdom like the other kingdoms here in the world. The Lord Jesus refused to set up a throne there in Jerusalem. The Lord was not interested in establishing a political kingdom. But he is the one who will reign from heaven and his kingdom will not be limited by, uh, to national boundaries. For he is a king who will rule over all peoples from all nations over the whole earth. 
And so his kingdom is one that will transcend the kingdoms and the nations of this world. For people from every nation, they will come and they will bow down and they will worship him as their Lord and as their king. And therefore we confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man who today now rules over the whole earth there from heaven. Beloved, today we confess, we believe with our heart that our Lord Jesus has been exalted by God the Father so that he might be the eternal king. And we, can believe, and we believe with our whole heart that his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never, never pass away. And his kingdom will be one that will never, ever be destroyed. And so it is through his suffering, through his death, through his humiliation, that the Lord Jesus now has been exalted uh, by the God the Father so that he might rule over the whole earth. And so today, beloved, we confess that this Jesus, he is my Lord, and that I now also worship him and I serve him as my eternal king. And then Jesus says, and you will see me sitting at the right hand of the mighty one. So may ask, well, why does he sit at the right hand of God? Well, first of all, the word to be seated or to sit is often used for somebody who is a king or somebody who is a ruler. Know that, that a king is one who always sits on, on his throne, uh, and that is a sign of his authority. And so when people come to, for an audience to the king, uh, they come before his throne, he's seated on the throne, and people come and they bow down before him. You find that, for example, in, in Daniel 7, verse, verse 9. They were told that thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of God, who, or the Ancient of Days, who is God, uh, took his seat. And so that indicates that he then is indeed the one who is the ruler, the Almighty King. We also have an example for in, in Exodus 18, verse 13 and, and 14. Uh, there Moses, we're told, acted as a judge in Israel. And when he sat as judge, what did he do? Well, he took his seat. He sat down to serve as judge, and the people would stand around him. Or you have Revelation chapter 4. There John sees a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it, and that was the Lord, and that was the Lord God. And so the fact that he's seated on the throne indicates that he is indeed the sovereign ruler. He is the king. And so to be seated was a mark of a person's authority, either Authority as a ruler or a king or somebody who might act as a judge, as was, for example, the case with, Mo with Moses. Jesus adds that they will see him seated there at the right hand of the Mighty One. Well, to be placed at a person's right hand is really to be given the, the highest place of honor. It was the custom, also then in the ancient Near East, uh, for the guests who came for dinner, that they would all be seated in, in order of importance around the table. And so the most important person was seated there at, at the right hand of the host, and the other guests would be seated around the table uh, in, 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 importance, in, in order of importance. That's why Lord Jesus, remember, also once uh, said to his disciples uh, that if you're a guest, then, then don't take the highest position. For then if your host tells you, uh, to, to go down somewhere or to take a seat further down, that that will indeed be humbling. And so Jesus then indeed 
tells the disciples, take the place of the lowest order, and that if your guest then tells you to, to move up, uh, then, well, that will indeed then also be honoring to you. And so, here the Lord Jesus, when he says that he'll be seated at the right hand of God, he tells us that he receives a place of authority and honor, but also a place of power. That's also made clear in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, where the Son of Man approached the Lord, the Lord God. And there he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And so being seated at the right hand of God means that the Lord Jesus has received authority, receives power from the Father, so that he might rule over the, world, the, whole, over the whole world. And so he is the Almighty King. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians 1, verse 20, where he writes that, that God was, has seated the Lord Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly realms, and that God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Now, those words, indeed, is what gives to believers our, our greatest comfort. For Paul says, he says, the Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven, so that he might govern over all things for what? He might govern over all things for the church. And who's the church? Well, the church represents God's people, those whom the Lord Jesus has bought with his precious blood. The church then represents all those who the Lord God has called out of this world to be his very own people. The church are, are those who look up to the Lord God in faith and look to the Lord Jesus as their king. And so our greatest joy is that we are able today, that we can look up to the Lord Jesus as our King, because we also trust that the Lord Jesus came and he has transferred me from, from the kingdom of those beasts that Daniel saw, which are those kingdoms of darkness, and he has now brought me, transferred me into the kingdom of God. That means, beloved, we have a King who truly cares about us. And therefore, we confess in question and answer 51 that our King is the one who now pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members, by his Holy Spirit. You see, the Lord Jesus is different from every other ruler that you find here on this earth. Earthly rulers, they, they use their power to do what? To achieve their own agenda. They will use their power to achieve what they want, and they will do that even at the expense of others. But the Lord Jesus is, is different. He rules differently. Why? Because his, he is completely concerned for our well-being, and his concern is so great that he is the one who even was willing to sacrifice everything for us. You see how he sacrificed everything also for you when, when he gave his life for you on the cross? Now he was willing to humble himself. He was willing to suffer at the hands of the corrupt high priest, Caiaphas, and, and the corrupt leaders of Israel. He was willing to give his life on the cross in order that he might earn for us life everlasting. That means, beloved, that when the Father in heaven gives authority and power to the Lord Jesus so that he might rule over the whole world, that power doesn't go to the head of our Lord Jesus. He doesn't use it for his own selfish purpose. 
but he uses that power in order that he might care for us and then he might provide for us. And one of the things that he does, we confess, is he pours out heavenly gifts upon us by his Spirit. See, in Ephesians 4, verse 7 and, and following, uh, Paul writes that when the Lord Jesus went to heaven, he gave gifts to men. To each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it, he writes. Well, you know what grace is. Grace are those wonderful gifts of life and salvation uh, that, that the Lord God gives to us, even though we're not worthy, even though none of us are deserving of it. And Paul lists some of those gifts in, in which he says that Christ has, has given to his church things such as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Why? To prepare God's people, he says, for works of service, so that the body may be built up. Notice what, you notice that what Paul's concern is, and what Christ, what he says, what Christ's concern is for the church. And Christ's concern for us, what does he do? He gives us those gifts that we need so that he might build us up in our faith, so that he might equip us for service in the kingdom of our God. And so Christ is the great king, and he cares so much that he will give to us all those gifts that we need in order that we may live as faithful citizens in the kingdom of our God. And so you see, beloved, it is Jesus Christ who rules over the church. And he rules over us in such a way that we can grow in our faith, in our love. That we can also grow in, in, in our strength in which we want to serve him so that we can continue to be strong in the face of the great opposition of those kingdoms of the world who are constantly opposed to us, those great beasts. And therefore, we confess also in question and answer 51 that Jesus, by His power, what does He do? He defends, He preserves us against all our enemies. You know, from this earthly perspective, what do we see all around us? Well, we see those beasts that Daniel saw. Those beasts are those kingdoms of the world, those powers all around us who, who oppose us and who oppose Jesus Christ. Now you see those powers of darkness also in the society in which we are living today. It almost seems today that, that every day again we read in the news that the devil seems to be winning a, another battle as, more, as greater and greater immorality is, overtakes our society. And it is spoken about as if those are the things that are most important for the life of the people of this nation. Wickedness, immorality, unbelief are all around us. And people today more and more, they, they walk in the way of sin and corruption and darkness, and they think that they have discovered the light. But beloved, the result of that opposition that increases each and every day means that as God's people, that we are also faced with greater hostility. As the anger of the world is turned against us and against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because we do not give in to their agenda, we do not promote their immorality. And the result is that sometimes we can feel so alone in this world. And sometimes we may even feel that we're being overwhelmed by the opposition and even by the hatred that is expressed more and more. But then we may turn around and we may confess 
But I have a Lord. I have a Savior. I have the Lord Jesus who is now seated there at the right hand of God. And my Father in heaven has given to him authority and power. The Son of Man is the one who now rules over this earth. And therefore, I can be absolutely sure and confident that he will defend and that he will preserve me against all of my enemies. Oh, the enemy is still so powerful. But beloved, our, our king is much more powerful. But he doesn't rule the world. Oh, he doesn't rule as, as the world does with force and with weapons. But his power comes through his word. And through his word and his Holy Spirit, he is the one who comes and who strengthens us in our fight against those powers of darkness. And it is through his word that he is able to open and he's able to change the heart of mankind. And that's why we don't lose heart. But beloved, we're called to keep on fighting for the faith. To continue to also witness to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Calling also the people of this world to, to submit their life to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. And then one day, the great King, he will indeed come on the clouds of heaven. Jesus says to the high priest Caiaphas, he says, from now on you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, on the one hand, you see that Caiaphas is rather, rather likes the words of the Lord Jesus because he is overjoyed by what the Lord Jesus has to say. Why? Because in his mind, the Lord Jesus has just said something blasphemous. And so he's just given him what he needs in order that he might be able to put the Lord Jesus to death and get rid of this troublemaker in Israel. And yet, those very words of the Lord Jesus should cause him to tremble in his boots. For he is about to condemn Jesus to death. And the Lord Jesus simply says to him, he says, Caiaphas, from now on, from now on, from this day on, you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, you think that you will be able to get rid of me. You think that you will never need to worry about me ever again. Caiaphas, I warn you that through this death, I'm about to enter into my glory. I will be seated there at the right hand of God, and one day I will return from there on the clouds of heaven. That should have been enough for Caiaphas to pause and to think about what he was dealing with. You know, in the Scriptures, the cloud is often associated with God and with the glory of God. For example, the Lord God appeared to the people of Israel in the wilderness in a cloud. And He went before them, and He appeared to them in the clouds there at Mount Sinai, and there they saw the majesty and the glory of God. Or you think about what the psalmist writes in Psalm 68, verse 4, there he speaks about the Lord God as the one who rides on the clouds of the heavens. Or we think of what we read about the ascension of our Lord Jesus as he went into heaven and he passed through the clouds and the, and the angels who spoke to the disciples afterwards said, as you saw him go up, so you will also see him again return on the clouds of heaven. But what will he do? 
What's he going to do when he returns in the clouds of heaven? Well, we read from Revelation 14. In Revelation 14, 14, there, there John saw a vision. In a vision, he saw seated on a cloud one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then the one sitting on the cloud is commanded to take the sickle and to go and to reap because the voice says the time to reap has come. And so here in Revelation 14, the one who is like the Son of Man, seated on the cloud, comes for what purpose? In order that he might reap the great harvest. Well, the harvest here is the great judgment, when God will come and he will gather the peoples of this world, and when he will forever punish and destroy all those who have opposed him. In that day of judgment, the wicked will be thrown... John sees in the vision, they will be thrown into the winepress of God's wrath or God's fury. And so what is Jesus then really saying then to the leaders of Israel? That they will indeed, they will see him again. And when they see him, they better watch out because then he, they will see him returning on the clouds of heaven in judgment. And when that day comes, that will be a terrible day for those who have opposed the great King, Jesus Christ. Because on that day, Jesus says, then you will experience the wrath of God and you will be cast into everlasting condemnation. And therefore, beloved, these words of the Lord Jesus were a warning not only for Caiaphas and for the leaders of Israel in those days, but it still stands also as a warning for us today. It means that you need to take seriously the fact that the Lord Jesus is indeed the great King who now rules over the whole world from the right hand of God. It means that today, beloved, you and I, we are called to worship and we are called to serve the Lord Jesus as our King and as our Lord. It also means that if we oppose Him, we refuse to listen to him, and we just go and we, we live as we please and do as we desire in our own hearts. It means that, that we will come under the same judgment as Caiaphas and the leaders of Israel who rejected the Lord Jesus as their king. But if you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, you turn to him in faith. Beloved, if you serve him as your king with your whole heart, then you may be absolutely sure. You may be confident that when he comes, that he will then also take you and he'll take all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. You see, when when we serve the Lord Jesus as our Lord and as our King, it means that we don't need to fear for the return of our Lord Jesus anymore. In fact, we may confess then with the words of question answer 52, in all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. Beloved, when the great King comes in the clouds of heaven, it's a day when we may lift up our voices to rejoice. For we believe that he, when He comes, that He will indeed, He will save us from our sins. And He will take us into His, ever, his everlasting kingdom of glory. 
We have that assurance because he himself is the one who has submitted his very own life to the judgment of God because of my sins. And so the one who comes as the great judge is the very one who has given his very own life on the cross to remove the curse of sin from my life. That means, beloved, that we do not need to fear this great king when he comes on the clouds of heaven. Because I know that he is the one who came and who has bought me with his blood and has paid for all of my sins. Those who need to fear that great king are those who have rejected him or all those who refuse to submit their life to his good rule. But for all of God's people, all those who have served him out of love, recognized him as their king of kings, his return will indeed be a time of great joy and rejoicing. In fact, we confess that we now eagerly we lift up our head as we look for Him to, to come on the clouds of heaven. We look for those signs also around us today, and then we don't also recognize we're getting closer to that day when my Lord and when my Savior and when my King will return from heaven. And when He comes, then He will then also establish the kingdom of God in all of its glory. And God's dominion then will be an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is a kingdom that will never, ever pass away. Amen.